And so we come to the second horse, referring, of course, to the four horsemen of the election apocalypse, the New Yorker article about what's going to happen, the four things that are going to happen if the Democrats win, presuming they hold the House, they take the Senate, and Joe Biden wins the presidency. New Yorker postulated that there were four things that were going to happen. Uh, The end of the cloture rule, which we talked about yesterday, the statehood for D.C., statehood for Puerto Rico, the expansion of the lower courts, and the expansion of the Supreme Court. And we're looking at these individually. Yesterday we talked about cloture, and reality of it is, is that's going to happen whether the Democrats win or not. Cloture has run its course. It, 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 it never did what it was supposed to do, and therefore it was problematic all along. And so we move on to the the second item, which is, of course, D.C. statehood, and the question of that as the second horse. Look, we haven't added a state to the United States since 1959. August of 1959, Hawaii was authorized to become a state. 1960, the new flag came out, and that makes this time period very unusual in our history. We added states hand over foot until we got to Hawaii, and then we just stopped. The general process of adding a state is, of course, a state starts life, generally speaking, as a territory, and people move in. They get enough people to to uh, meet the criteria to have a congressperson. They they apply to become a state. There is an enabling act passed by Congress. That enabling act tells that territory, what the steps that they need to do, and the conditions that will be acceptable. They design their own constitution, draft their own constitution. They approve that constitution. It's sent to Washington, where it's approved by the president, and then the state becomes a new state. Uh, In some cases, there's been some strangeness going on in that. Uh, It appears that Ohio never actually bothered to get an enabling act. Um, Nobody can find it. Washington, my state, uh, when they sent the proposed constitution in, the governor forgot to sign it. And this was in the days before overnight mail and email and PDFs and that sort of thing. And so they had to courier another one to him with his signature on it before the president could sign it. Uh, We've talked at great length about Nevada and some others as well. But that's the general procedure by which something becomes a state. As you know, Washington, D.C. has approved, approved in the last general election in 2016, a referendum to pursue becoming the 51st state of the United States. And in fact, a few weeks ago, the Congress of the United States, the House, uh, passed legislation authorizing Washington, D.C. to become a state. It's not expected to pass the Senate, and it would be unlikely that President Trump would sign it, uh, even if it did. But the Democrat Party has made it clear that they are in favor of D.C. statehood, and that's why it's assumed that if they take the Senate and the presidency, that it will become a state. That's the conventional wisdom. The reality of it is D.C. is going to become a state. The only real question is when and 
how many Republicans will actually end up voting for it. You ever ask yourself, why is there a Washington, D.C. in the first place? Our original capital, of course, was in Philadelphia, Independence Hall. We, we're all well familiar with it. This is where the Continental Congress is met. This is where our Declaration of Independence was signed. Later, it would be where the Constitution would be signed, debated and signed. But it wasn't always our capital. In 1783, however, June, early June, early to mid-June of 1783, it still was. Philadelphia was still the capital of the United States. The American Revolutionary War had ended officially in 1782, and people were looking to get back to normality. They were looking to get on with the business of the country and back to the business of their lives. But there was a problem. That problem was that many of the, the militia members who had served during the Revolutionary War, particularly in Pennsylvania, had not been paid. And now that the war was over, now that independence and liberty was won, this was a problem. Because Congress had agreed along the way to cover those costs, the states themselves now were not really willing to take up that cause. They, they weren't really willing to, to fork over those bucks. This is Congress's job. And Congress, as you may know, in the early part of our country, was highly ineffective. Why? Because all confederations are ineffective for the same reasons throughout history. This one was no different. The Articles of Confederation gave Congress certain powers, but all of them were vetoable by the states. Well, can't really run a national government that way, and this is what we were discovering. In June of 1783, 400 Pennsylvania militiamen got word that they weren't going to get paid again, and they decided that they would let Congress know that they were not, not happy about this. And so they went to Philadelphia, to Independence Hall, where Congress was meeting, and they essentially took, uh, took Congress uh, hostage. They essentially went in there and basically said, you either pay us or you will abide with whatever the results of us being here are. Congress, the president of the Congress, people that were there, felt very seriously threatened by these four, some say as many as 600 militiamen, these veterans of the Revolutionary War, holding Congress hostage <laughs> for their back pay. It's not the first time this is going to happen in our history, by the way. But there is a good deal of discussion about what to do. Alexander Hamilton, who is, of course, a veteran of the, Civil, of the American Revolutionary War himself, is sent out to negotiate with the militiamen, and he persuades them to wait. Give, give us some time to talk things over, and we'll get back to you. Which today, I think we would recognize as the congressional two-step. But this may have been the very first time that it was ever really tried on citizens. Veterans, knowing that Hamilton was one of them, 
thought, okay, we'll give them a little bit of time, and they waited. Meanwhile, the delegation from Pennsylvania, or the delegation from Congress, went to the Pennsylvania legislature, which oddly enough was meeting in exactly the same building, and said, protect us. It's your job to protect Congress of the United States. You you need to do this. And in what is perhaps one of the most interesting historical conundrums in the history of our country, Pennsylvania, their legislature, looked at this and said to themselves, okay, why would we do this? In essence, Pennsylvania's legislature, meeting in another room in the same building, basically told the Congress of the United States, your problem, pay them or else. Not our problem. We're not dealing with it. President of the United States shot back with, okay, if you're not going to protect us, we're going to move Congress. We're going to go somewhere else. Now, to you and me, that sounds like a ridiculous, mm, almost silly threat. But remember, in 1783, Philadelphia was heavily dependent upon the income that the legislative bodies was generating for it. I mean, Think about this, all these people staying in hotels with their retinues, with their drinking and eating and and tourism, coming to see the Congress of the United States and all this business going through here. Hey, this is good stuff. Congress is saying, well, if you don't protect us, we're going to move. And oddly enough, that threat, the threat of moving Congress somewhere else, had no effect whatsoever on the Pennsylvania legislature. And they basically said... (laughs) Bye, Felicia. And so the next day, Congress literally moved originally to Harrisonburg, a little bit west of there, and then finally on to New Jersey, and then on to New York City, and would not return to Philadelphia, at least not unofficially, until the Constitutional Convention four years later. And even that wasn't really Congress, it was the Constitutional Convention. The idea percolated for many, many months and many, many years, and many, many thoughts went into this. And it was decided that because of this little incident, that the federal government would need its own place, which it could, if necessary, guard itself, provide itself with its own security, and not have to depend upon the good feelings of one of the individual states to protect it. And so they put into the Constitution in 1787, in Article 1, Section 8, Congress shall have the power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not exceeding 10 miles square as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States. This all came about because Pennsylvania refused to protect the Congress of the United States in the face of a veterans' out rebellion, for all practical purposes, over back pay. George Washington got involved. He, he basically called the, the, the militiamen who were demanding back pay uh, traitors and rebe- rebels and, 
at any rate, it all finally got settled because Congress moved to New Jersey anyway, which is kind of a weird thing to think about, but they did. And then eventually on to New York City. And then we went through the same arguments again. Who gets this national capital? Where is it going to be? New York City, remember, they built all kinds of stuff to try to keep it there. Philadelphia built a presidential palace to try to keep or to get Congress to come back to Philadelphia. You know, all this stuff we talk about today about sports stadiums, cities building sports stadiums so as to lure franchises in. This is nothing new. I mean, there's money to be made. And so that's why they do it. In Federalist 43, Madison argued that the idea was, was, was clearly understood because we've got to be able to protect this government. And clearly, we can't depend on the states to do this. The states are not going to provide that perfection, protection. So Congress will have that ultimate authority over this little area, no more than 10 square miles. And that will keep our government safe and not dependent upon the goodwill of the good people of Pennsylvania or New Jersey or New York or Georgia or wherever. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about how they chose the area that they did, but ultimately this 10 square miles along the Potomac River was chosen and territory was, was ceded from Maryland and from Virginia for the formation of the District of Columbia. You know this. And hitherto there, it has served as our seat of our government, our national government at any rate. But now we come to 2016, and we come to the 2020 election, and the 2020 idea that a Democrat sweep will automatically mean that D.C. will become a state. This is an idea that has been batted around for a very, very long time. There's nothing... Nothing new here, except that now we're beginning to see movement. Now we're beginning to see people go, it's not just an intellectual idea. It's not just a hypothetical exercise. Now there's real emotion, real meaning behind it. For you see, the people of District of Columbia have been disenfranchised and have been made marginal by the lack of statehood and the lack of representation. Hey, we're taxed. We pay income tax. How come we don't have any representation? Taxation without representation, they said. Now, of course, there are numerous solutions to this problem, but the only one that people seem to care about is statehood. If we make this a state, what then? And of course, this is seen as the second horse of the apocalypse, of the election apocalypse of 2020, because D.C. statehood carries with it some certain beliefs, some certain absolutes that people are accepting as this is done deal. If D.C. becomes a state, they will automatically have three electoral votes at start because they will have one representative and two senators. And it is presumed that those Congress members, two senators and a representative in the House, will automatically be Democrats because of the demographics involved and because of the way D.C. has always voted. It's automatically assumed that those would be Democrats. So that's going to affect the balance of power in the Congress. 
specifically the Senate. And with three more electoral votes, it could have an impact on the on presidential elections. That's the assumption that that's an automatic. But that all depends upon how we go about doing this, doesn't it? And it also depends on maintaining the status quo, which isn't necessarily a given, is it? I mean, think about some things here. All right, so let's say D.C. becomes a state. What happens to the tax base there? Right now, the tax base in Washington, D.C., sales tax, that sort of stuff, uh, property taxes, that all goes to a city fund managed, you know, under overseen by Congress that operates the city functions. But if that goes to the state of Washington, Douglas, because that's what it's going to be called, Douglas Commonwealth, um, what changes? Do they raise those rates? Do they lower those rates? What We don't even know for certain what land area is going to be selected for this. I don't know if you've been to D.C. or not, but much of Washington, D.C., at least the southern end of it, is clearly federal in nature. I mean, it's the National Mall, it's the Capitol, it's the White House, it's those kinds of things right up nestled against the north shore of the Potomac River. The rest of it could be considered residential, but much of it is parkland. A lot of it is, you know, monuments and those sorts of things. How do you divide this? What remains? Because if you don't do that, in other words, if you completely eliminate the federal aspect of this, now we're back to Washington, D.C., the Douglas Commonwealth, is now going to be responsible for protecting the federal government, for protecting Congress? Question mark. The assumption is then that not all of that land becomes D.C., the state. What of it does? And given the nature of Washington, D.C., the demographic nature of it, you're going to, like all big cities, have difficulties because you're going to have affluent areas and you're going to have very poor areas. And if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you know what I'm talking about. The tax base alone, you know, what's federal, what's state, what land area, who defends Congress? We've actually managed to come full circle with the same argument that got us Washington, D.C. in the first place. Who's going to protect this? Who's going to decide this (laughs) if this becomes a state? What are they going to do? Put up a border? I don't know. There's actually a proposal from those who think about these things to have a commuter tax in the state of Washington, Douglas Commonwealth. I'm not making that up. So everybody that comes into and through the state of Washington, Douglas Commonwealth on their way to the federal, whatever it becomes, would have to pay a commuter tax. Well, if you know anything about that area at all, and I used to live there for a short time. I didn't live there for very long, but but if you know anything about that area, the map is not really telling. It doesn't really tell you what the development of that area is. And a lot of these organizations, a lot of these businesses, a lot of these think tanks, (laughs) you think they're going to pay that commuter tax? 
Not a chance. They're going to move across the river into Virginia, into Maryland. They don't, in, in today's world, they don't necessarily need to be. It's nice to be close, but believe me, you don't have to be. And at the end of the day, who then protects Congress? Constitution says 10 square miles, period. But it also says that Congress exercises full authority over that. Could Congress pass a law? Sure. Could they pass a law that says, okay, everybody that lives here, resident here, since you say you're not enfranchised, you're now a voting resident of the state of Maryland. And we'll reapportion Washington, D.C.'s population into Maryland's congressional delegation. Those are ideas that could happen. But in any case, no matter what happens, believe me, Washington, D.C. is going to become a state one way or another. And when it does, I guarantee you that politicians of both parties thinking politically rather than creatively are going to vote for it. And we will have come full circle. We have a Washington, D.C. because who's going to protect Congress? None of the states are. And now we're going to be right back in that same situation again, aren't we? What happens if some angry mob decides to shut down Congress? Right now what happens is the federal police force in Washington, D.C., And the National Guard can defend it. What happens when there's a governor who says no? Far-fetched, you say? I don't think so. We'll see. In any case, the U.S. Army's Department of Herald Registry, I guess, has already designed a 51-state flag, so there you go. That's what it's going to look like. And I also guarantee you this, a majority of Republicans in Congress will vote for D.C. statehood. Guaranteed. Right now they won't, but I guarantee you, soon enough, they will. And the second horse of the election apocalypse of 2020 will ride off into the sunset, taking cloture and D.C. statehood right along with it. 